0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with
2: Genevieve Kosky. Keith Epps. And Tasha Robinson.
1: In our last episode, we talked about Yorgos Lanthimos' black comedy, Dogtooth, about a family that lives in isolation and creates its own alternate version of reality. This week, we're bringing in Kajillionaire, the new comedy-drama by Miranda July, the writer-director of indie films such as Me, You, and Everyone We Know, and The Future. And if you've ever wondered, what if Miranda July made her own version of Dogtooth? Kajillionaire would be a pretty good answer. Kajillionaire follows the Dines, a family of con artists. Robert and Teresa Dine, played by Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger, have raised their now 26-year-old daughter less as a child who needs their love, but as a one-third partner on extremely small-time scams. In the opening sequence, for example, Old Dolio Dine, played by Evan Rachel Wood, sticks her arm through the back of a post office box, pads around for loose packages in an adjacent box, and splits its contents with her parents. The most valuable item is probably a tie. The Dines need to pull off a bigger job if they're going to make back rent at a living space that leaks pink soapy suds from the business connected to it. Old Dolio comes up with a plan to lose a bag of airplane luggage and collect the insurance money, but in working that particular scam, the Dines add a fourth conspirator in Melanie Whitaker, played by Gina Rodriguez. Melanie has a job at a crappy eyeglass place in the mall, but she loves Ocean's Eleven and is intrigued by a life of crime. But as Melanie becomes part of the team, Old Dolio's narrow world opens up a bit and the possibilities for a new life and perhaps a new love come flooding in. We'll talk about it after the break. After this person. And clear. Now.
2: There's a camera there, there. In there.
1: Cash. Nope, in any order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people
0: want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine.
1: Ha ha ha. Cry cry cry. Me, I prefer to just skim. So do I. February, March, April? Uh, we may have to pay an installment.
2: Rent is an installment. It's a monthly. Storm.
0: They are real characters super unique, but you vouch for them, right? She learned to forge before she learned to write. Oh, no, actually, that's how she did learn to write
3: My favorite movies are the ocean 11 movies. This is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting So what do your parents do, Hun? honorable hon?
0: You've never called me that But you could if it was a job though, right? addicted to them they're my parents
1: in what sense so kajillionaire what did everyone think
0: I mean, I saw this movie back at at Sundance early this year and loved it. It was one of the films that I wrote up directly out of the festival because I enjoyed it so much. And I've enjoyed Miranda July's past uh, films. I've enjoyed uh, her books, which are very, very quirky and give a very strong sense of her personality and her personal life. But I feel like this is easily the most accessible and the most kind of fun, the most accomplished of uh, her films to date. Its story feels a lot more like tight and taught and directed than the stories in the future or me and you and everyone we know. It feels like it's tapping into that same sort of, you know, boundless source material that she draws from. That's just kind of like the quirky people of California, the sad and lonely people that don't necessarily process themselves as, as sad and lonely until you look at them at the outside. But just people looking for some kind of connection and finding it hard to make that connection because, again, they're quirky, they're unusual, they're in some ways difficult to love. So, I I mean, for me, I just – I really dig this movie. I dig how strange it is. I dig how weird the performances are. I really just particularly love Richard Jenkins' awkwardness and difficulty. And how squirmy, in a way, this movie is – you know dog tooth very squirmy in a very different way this one just constantly gives me this sense of like oh god i i just don't want to be locked in a room with these people it's (laughs) it's fine as long as i can kind of keep them at a a movie screen's distance but you can feel exactly how awkward it would be to be stuck in a conversation with them and i love the specificity that gets us there i love the specificity of all of the kind of the beats and episodes within this story
2: Yeah, the squirminess comes a lot more, I think, from the performances and the characters, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but I also really like this film, and I did feel a connection to these characters that I I didn't necessarily feel to the the characters in Dogtooth, and that may be a little bit the the language barrier, you know? Subtitles are naturally like kind of putting you at, at a remove, But I also just think Evan Rachel Wood is just an actress I always really been drawn to going back to 13, which is a a flawed movie in many ways, but I think is a very uh, vibrant uh, performance from her as a a very young actor there. And her performance here is just so, again, to use your word, Tasha, specific. The voice she's doing, the way she's carrying herself, that move she does whenever she goes by the low wall to to hide herself, the limb like the physicality of the performance but the character not being overwhelmed by that physicality and the quirks of the performance like there is a real heart to old dolio and you do feel at least i felt a a tremendous amount of just sympathy and for her by by the end of this film and as i think we're supposed to because gina rodriguez's character also kind of feels that despite you know, the moments where Old Olio lashes out at her. There is just this wounded quality to her that draws you to her for for whatever reason. And yeah, there's a lot to say about this film. But I think just in terms of what really connected me to it uh, on this first viewing was the performances and Evan Rachel Wood in particular.
3: So I liked it quite a bit too, but I think everything that makes it your favorite Miranda July movie, kind of makes it my least favorite Miranda July movie, uh, Tasha. It is definitely a more coherent narrative. It's more accessible. But I also kind of like, you know, I kind of miss the sort of free-floatingness of of her preceding films. It, It felt a little rained in in some ways, which is you know an odd thing to say about a movie with a bubbling wall. <laughs> in it.
2: But, uh, I uh, love but that uh, image so much. Yeah. The the wall. It's so good. I, I
3: love Richard Jenkins' delivery of the of the line, "Run the buckets." Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I don't know what it was. It kind of kept me a little bit at a distance, even though I admired everything that you're pointing out about it. Um, I guess maybe is I don't. I want to get in trouble here, but I didn't necessarily. By the attraction to old Dolio, I, I didn't really see what would uh, draw Melanie to her. And to uh, the family in general, maybe so. Maybe you guys can help me unlock that a little bit.
0: The family, I absolutely see because the way that Melanie deals with the guy hitting on her on the plane, I think is just really indicative. Like this is somebody who, to some degree, like lives in her own head a little bit. Like when she's talking to the mom and dad on the plane, they're being insanely weird, and she's just kind of like laughing it off. And like, you know, Richard Jenkins goes on and on about how uh, phones are a tool of the military and she's like, yeah, I practically live on this thing. You know, she's she's not quite connecting it and she's definitely not processing them as, as weird and uncomfortable. She just seems like somebody who anything that comes her way, she's pretty giving with, except her relationship to her mom, which is something we're definitely going to want to mm-hmm. dig into. But her fascination with their like petty crimes seems to be why she's drawn to continue to interact with them. And then she's kind of horrified by what that actually means when it comes to dealing with real people. But the physical, the implication of a physical attraction to old Dolio or even a an emotional connection with her is I think the biggest weakness here. I kept thinking to myself, like this is a beautiful woman who very clearly is in contact with a lot of people Where are all her friends as this, you know, several day period is going on? Where are the people that she would be in contact with? Like, where are the people that this kind of character would be just talking to constantly on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or Snapchat or whatever? Like, we know that she lives on her phone, but we mostly just see her enduring contact with her mom. And her lack of a social life was honestly the part of the film I found hardest to buy.
2: See it. Worked okay for me. Her her lack of a social life, I didn't really think about that. I guess, and as as I was watching the film, but in terms of her attraction to, Oldolio, I think what I read, as I mentioned, you know, sort of reading Oldolio as a sympathetic character and Melanie like feeling that sympathy for her. I think Melanie is at heart. Well, we see over and over again. You mentioned her her mom Tasha. Like we see these conversations with her mom, but also all these indications that her mom is this ultra sort of nurturing connected presence in her life, the exact opposite of Old Olio's mom. So I think there is sort of a inherent nurturing instinct that Melanie has that is maybe being brought out of her through Old Olio. That's the reading I got as far as the attraction. It's not Necessarily so much in the physical. I think it's more in the feeling of recognizing a a wounded person and being drawn to them because you are the kind of person who at heart wants to fix people, you know? And that's why I think it was like a bad fit for her and the family. And like she's kind of romanticized this idea of con artistry, but once she's actually faced with it and faced with the human part of it she kind of recoils. So I think given that we can read this character as someone who has a nurturing instinct that is sort of being drawn out of her in tandem with Old Olio needing (laughs) a a nurturing presence in her life. You know, that's maybe something we can get into more in Connections. But uh, before we do, Scott, what did you think of the film?
1: I liked it. I guess maybe with Keith and not thinking it's quite as strong as the other films of hers I've seen of me, you, and everyone we know in in the future, but only by a little. I mean, and what I, you know, the auteurist in me sort of appreciates just understanding, like right away, that you're in the world of a Miranda July movie. Just the way people talk, the approach to trying to understand human nature. um, There's just no one like it. I mean, she's a completely singular voice. And so that is exciting and it's offbeat and you find yourself having to kind of relearn the world you know on her terms, and which is great. To me, the primary asset this film has is Gina Rodriguez. I think that she's an outsider to this group, but also kind of an outsider to the world of a Miranda July movie. I don't think you would expect somebody like Gina Rodriguez, who I think you associate with kind of a no BS way of going about her life or about her business on screen to turn up and kind of apply a little bit of that to this world, to a Miranda July world, where she at least has one foot, you know, in what the rest of us might recognize as the real world, where she has a kind of a crappy job, and she has a mother who is um, taking up a lot of her time and, and mental energy. She has certain Recognizable longings, I suppose, that might attract her to this scheming, and she's really funny, you know. And there's a spark that is generated between her and Evan Rachel Wood's character um, that mostly uh, justifies that relationship with me, even uh, for me, even though it doesn't play quite as strongly as it should. Um, so all that all that stuff is good, I guess. My feeling is like it ends up being a pretty simple film it has a strong sentimental streak that i didn't fully respond to because i'm i'm just a cold-blooded <laughs> person i guess but like it didn't it it didn't quite move me to the extent that i expected it <laughs> to um given what old dolio's journey is given that it, i think it should be extremely powerful that she's experiencing Things that she has never experienced before, and we should, as viewers, should connect to that. And it only really worked for me one, like the one. There's the whole sequence in the house of the dying man. I, mean, I was that, going to call the,
0: that out. I like if if you don't connect to that emotionally, I right. don't. I, I mean, don't have any hope me, for you. That,
1: to me, that is by far the best sequence in the film. I mean, it, but it's phenomenal. It's great, but mm-hmm. I didn't have that feeling. That didn't carry through the rest of the movie for me. But that, like that one, isolated series of scenes just killed me I thought it was great
2: I mean it's also one of the longest scenes in the movie I mean I didn't I didn't time it but it, it might be the longest they are in, oh, yeah. in any one place you know there there is a I wouldn't quite call it a sense of franticness to this movie but it is very, I, I mean like every time we're with this family they are they're on the move the most they are ever like in one spot is when they're on the plane and they could not be more uncomfortable you know they're, they're just they're just an, an agitated people you know this family Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: so and I think the reason that scene is so striking is because it does force them to be still and to be in this space you know and and through it all Robert Richard Jenkins's character is like is he dead yet is he dead yet because he wants to like move on you know so I think it is designed to be sort of a centerpiece scene because its pacing is just so different from everything around it
0: I feel like that sequence is just a genius piece of character work. I think that watching these four people attempt to emulate a normal family. It- the routes that they go about it are all completely different. And in particular, watching Teresa, watching Deborah Winger's character, who falls into the character of a, a nurturing mom, like she mm-hmm. falls into the role play of it just flawlessly, smoothly. It's a skill that she's very comfortable with. And the fact that she has never felt it necessary or valuable to play this role for her own daughter, when she it's clearly something that she can do easily, she just doesn't value it. I think it's fascinating. Watching the roles that each of them choose within the fake household, um, watching how they interact with each other, it just feels like you learn so much about them in those moments. And then watching Evan Rachel Wood's face... As it just sort of sinks in that this is the closest thing she's ever experienced to a normal household and a normal family and a normal relationship. And that this is something that maybe she didn't ever realize she wanted, but now she wants it. And in mid-bubble, it bursts so uh,
2: Robert can encourage everybody to go steal some more money from a dying man. So, Scott, you mentioned Gina Rodriguez's yes. performance and I like it very much as well. I've been on this podcast before, I believe the Annihilation episode talking about what a fan I am of Gina Rodriguez. She's become a little more difficult to stand in, in in recent uh, you know, months. She's had some problematic moments off screen, but as far as like the energy she brings on screen, I still very much respond to it. You mentioned a toughness that you associate with her, and I admit that's like not something I really associate with gina rodriguez i can maybe see it in annihilation but you know the thing i knew her for first i think a lot of people did is jane the virgin which probably informs my reading of that character as like a inherently nurturing person but i guess you know jane also does exhibit a a sort of tough streak but it's just a very softened one that
1: makes sense And, and i think you can see some of that character Jane the Virgin appear here. I mean, there is a certain brightness here and an enthusiasm to the performance that everybody needs. I mean, and that old Dolio responds to so well. I mean, this it's just like, you you think about how they live their lives in this miserable, you know, when they're home, they're in a miserable, this miserable space that's full of... Uh, their
3: lives are defined by of, fear and mistrust, and she's the exact opposite of that. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. there's brightness and optimism and fun. I mean, there's kind of like, she's ready for adventure and she's normal i mean there's this maybe her impulse to be a part of this group gives her the an eccentricity but she's a normal person and that just changes everything it's just like it's an introduction to a world that old olio o- did not have access to before and and in the film's best moments i think you can really feel that in a profound way
2: And it's a very notable contrast point to Deborah Winger's performance as as Teresa, which, you know, as we've already uh, alluded to, is, uh, you know, very cold and withholding, again, by design. I know I've seen Deborah Winger in things, but I honestly don't have a lot of associations with her that I brought to this performance. How did it work for you guys?
1: It's kind of enigmatic to me. She's so withdrawn and withholding that... Mm -hmm. She almost doesn't make that strong an impression. Yeah, it feels at all. like sort
2: of the weakest of the four, at least in terms of making an impression.
1: And you gotta hate it because it's like Deborah Winger. You just haven't seen Deborah Winger mm-hmm. in a while. And yeah, it's I thought just, she's kind
2: of been defined by her absence in the last
3: few years.
1: Well,
2: she was on The Ranch, which was a very popular series that I don't think any of us watch, but uh, yeah. No.
1: That happens so often, just yeah. like. What happened to this person? Well, they're, just, they're, they're on like the 12th season of a hit show that you don't watch. Uh, so good for Deborah Winger, but I hadn't seen her in a while. And I did wish that that role had as much going on as the other three major roles here.
0: I think it's perfect narratively, though. I think if she was as big and loud a personality as Robert is, the movie would just sort of feel like people trying to out mug each other. Like Evan Rachel Wood is doing that strange thing with her voice. And so much of the movie is about her physicality. And Gina Rodriguez has to play this like bigger and brighter and larger than life character for that personality to come across. To me, Deborah Winger is playing a really cool and subtle character here who's defined by her absences. Her absence of maternal instinct, her absence of awareness of what her daughter is going through and what she wants, her absence of a conscience, her absence of kind of individuality. She sort of lets Robert call the shots and just kind of like blurs into his personality. It's a role that we've seen older women play in dramas, like since time immemorial, just the Older woman who is just really an extension of her husband, and I feel like the treatment of it here is subversive and interesting. I think she does a lot with
3: it. I think the moments when she comes to life too, like in that in that scene we were talking about where she's playing the role of the mother, it's really you know surprising and disarming and, and suggestive of hidden depths. You know, you also kind of wonder. Much like the mother and dog tooth, not to get ahead, uh, is, you know how she ended up in this with this man and and his uh, odd aspirations—if that's the right word—and
2: <laughs> how much those uh, aspirations are, you know, collaborative she versus, yeah, yeah, just uh, following suit.
0: Yeah, I was overly reminded of uh, the movie slash play Bug during some of this and just the feeling of which of them came first and dragged the other one down with them who fell into whose pit here
2: i mean that's a question you could ask about melanie and Oldolio. probably <laughs> that's yeah, a relationship fair. i'm very curious to see five years down the line assuming it it would last that long
1: yeah well we'll see <laughs> but i'm actually i'm pretty anxious to talk about these families in relation to each other. So why don't we do that? We'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Dogtooth and Kajillionaire.
2: Is this the normal amount of turbulence for this route? Yes. Really? Totally. It's...
0: Oh, no! What? what? Oh. <laughs> I thought that I forgot my head. Oh, it's... Did they say that there was Wi-Fi in this plane? I don't remember. Oh, there is. Oh, you got to pay. Why do they do that? You're
2: better
1: off.
0: Oh, this? Oh, I know. Trust me, I'm the worst. I like to sleep with it. It's like my third
1: arm. It's a tool. It was originally designed by and for the military and intelligence community. The CIA and Army Ground Ops specifically. It is a powerful and it's a dangerous tool. You don't have a cell phone? I use it as it was intended. And I don't dress it up and play dolly with it. Oh, well then don't meet my mom. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And you know what? They kind of do. It's it's pretty neat. Good job, us, for bringing these two together. (laughs) Let's talk about parenting or parenting with an agenda. We were sort of um, curious, I guess, about what the agenda of the parents in Dogtooth was. But then I guess maybe we could be curious about what the agenda here is as well, right?
0: I don't know that we can be curious about it. It seems really blatantly obvious that from day one, like this child was born in part to serve a function in their schemes. I, You can just imagine, given the circumstances under which she was named, it sounds like literally from from day one <laughs> of her life, they were using her as a prop in their schemes. That's true. And, you Best know, that joke was... in the
1: movie, by the way. The origins <laughs> of her name are just, that is absolutely brilliant. <laughs>
0: So uh, this is uh, just a, a weird, a side note and uh, Scott's favorite thing, an extra textual. But when I saw the film at Sundance, there was a and a afterward and somebody asked about that name and... <laughs> Miranda July told this fairly elaborate story about how the name Old Dolio came from a dream she had. No, a dream that some a friend of hers had, in which Miranda July and her husband gave birth to kittens and gave them all names, and one of them was named Old Dolio, and that just all, always stuck with her. So Evan Rachel's Wood character named after somebody else's fictional dream kitten.
2: I'm sorry, we're straying from the connection already, but uh, like for a uh, you know just seeming cumbersome name it does really kind of roll off the tongue nicely the more the more you say it uh, it reminds me of the what was the dog in the movie the point was it, it was like Olio or, or something i know the movie the point Hmm. The, like, no, I, the Harry I can, Nelson I can movie. visualize the little yeah. uh, animated character that stars in it, but I don't think I've ever I'm gonna seen I'm going to look it film. up and break in with it at an opportune moment, but continue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I think what's interesting about both of these films and parenting is that they're both kind of like quirky slash extreme versions of the really common problem of parents wanting children to be in extensions of themselves. Parents wanting to be able to control their children's choices into adulthood and uh, possibly even into late adulthood out of a sense of like, I know what's best for you, uh, but also out of something of a sense of maybe I did some things wrong and I can perfect that through you. Both of these sets of very controlling parents are basically like looking at their mid-20s children as still extensions of themselves, as extensions of their success at their not
2: just at their parenting, but at the way they actually live their lives. Oblio was the name of the boy, and Arrow was his dog. <laughs> 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 but yes, that is a good point, Tosh. And it actually, I'm going to bring in a, another connection as a sub-connection here, but I think this is probably the best place to discuss it, is that two sets of parents, they're sort of, you know, respective cons of their children or the way that they have isolated their children from society at large is are both really informed by social class. Oldolio's family is poor. They're behind on their rent. There's some derisive comments about rich people, you know, and so all of their sort of manipulation of Oldolio is in service of a sort of outward projecting need. Whereas in Dogtooth, they're clearly a very well-to-do family. They have this country estate that's fenced in and they have the means to isolate their children from the outside world. And so their con on their children is like more of an inward one because they have the ability to do that in a way that that I don't think Old Olio's parents would even want to do because it, the family and dogtooth seem to be you know talking about motives coming from a place of wanting to at some level protect their children or at least like keep them from the outside world which is not really I think the concern. With Old Olio's family, they're, the way they isolate their child is, like Tasha said, more in service of them, which, like I said, is in service of economic need.
0: Although it's a self created economic mm. need, I think Robert makes it very clear that he chose to drop out of the system right. and he feels that grifting, that skimming, as he calls it, is somehow a noble calling. Like he feels like he's one. Because they they don't work normal jobs and they're not. I I ain't a part of your system. Mm-hmm. I threw it on the ground. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of like it's that kind of like like petulant uh, attitude of just you know I'm not falling for your your garbage and your schemes. I'm living the way I want to live, which is literally living hand to mouth, spending every moment of every day desperately hustling and constantly being behind on on everything. But you know, by God, he's not working for somebody
3: else. He has a gentle birth.
0: (laughs) (sighs) It's interesting sort of the contrast between him and the father in Dogtooth, who seems to work a very standard office job in a pretty grubby, like a a little office, like up high and in the back of some kind of industrial manufacturing or warehouse company. We, We don't know very much about what he does or how he feels about it. Uh, But it feels like a very standard white collar, closely associated with blue collar kind of work. And given his quirks, given his unusual way of looking at the world, giving his apparent money, it's kind of hard to understand how he relates to something so prosaic as an apparent like nine to five industrial job. But we see him there and we see that he Fits in like pretty normally. He's, he certainly doesn't stand out, uh, in public the way Robert well, does. Well, he's also
2: like created a whole backstory for his wife <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that she's in a wheelchair and as a, was it a, squ- a squash, a championship squash player or what was, what was it? Handball? Uh, I think handball. Reminded me yeah. a fair bit of Hugh Jackman in Bad Education
0: mm. and just like the invented dead wife that allows him to, not have people question at him at all about his romantic life.
1: So he's speaking of pairing regrets. I don't know uh, <laughs> that we might have had before. I mean, but ultimately, ultimately, as parents, their way of going about their business is destructive to their <laughs> to their children. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing I guess about Kajillionaire, because it isn't an allegory in the same way that Dogtooth is, is that we can appreciate the impact on much more on a human level of what the long-term effects of this parenting has been on Old Dolio. And so it becomes kind of an emotional journey for that character in a way that it can't be for the adult children in uh, Dogtooth.
2: It's also... Notable, I guess, to me anyway, that these are nuclear families. There, you don't have a single parent scenario here. Like there, I'm sure there's a, a story that it, it might even be easier to tell this kind of story from a position of a, of a single parent and a, a single force exerting on the child. But by making it, you know, a marriage in both case, you add another dynamic to the parent child dynamic and in both cases there are, are certainly questions <laughs> about those marriages some of which we've already discussed
0: yeah but at the same time like having both of those relationships you have a a strong sense of a conspiracy against the children of mm-hmm. like a united front being presented against the children by at least, it's not just a case of, uh, like and Leave No Trace Mm, when a a a young woman is being raised by a father with very specific ideas of how to live informed by trauma and PTSD and uh, possibly mental illness but he's an outlier, you know, he's one person with a a lot of damage that he's trying to navigate Here we've got two different couples who have agreed amongst themselves, who have found common ground and decided decided amongst themselves to completely support and back each other up in undermining their children and using their children in creating alternate realities for their children. And it's so much more oppressive in a way, this sense of like old Dolio tries pretty early on to get her mother to do something with her alone. And it's just, it's completely shut down, not even shut down in a no and here's why kind of way, but literally just sort of ignored and dismissed as if she hadn't said the words. And then she finds out later that Teresa went and told Robert about it. And Robert has his own opinions. Yeah, well,
3: it's, she's chided it for it at that point. too. Yeah, it's
0: ugly. It's just entirely and potentially every marriage is something that the children get shut out of. You know, that's a link, a union that Precedes them that has a history they weren't a part of. Maybe every child feels to some degree that they might love either of their parents more than the other or want a a personal connection with them. But it can be very hard to like to make that connection if the parents have each other and and are close. And both of these seem to be like very close, very simpatico marriages. They're both very
2: sexual marriages, Yeah, yeah I was going to say, they both, you, or you? They, they both dabble in some uh, non-traditional sex stuff, yeah. <laughs>
0: both of them. <laughs> Although, with Robert and Teresa, do you get the impression that they're actually into it at all? Or is it just something they're willing to do as, as part of their scams?
2: I mean, well, there's mm. the whole hot tub uh, threesome uh, that doesn't happen, thankfully. that seem
3: to be purely recreational and not not like a, not part of a scam, right?
2: If Yorgos
0: Lanthimos had directed that, <laughs> that the threesome would have happened. It would have been sexually great graphic and it would have gone on for like eight or eight or nine minutes. It would be so for the neck
3: down. You wouldn't see the top of anyone's heads.
0: Yeah, but when they when they pull that uh the hot tub routine I don't know. To me, it just doesn't feel any different from walking into that poor masseuse's office and saying, "Can we have this rock? Uh, can we have <laughs> that piece of furniture? Can we have, you know, a, like desperately listing? Here are things that I would be willing to accept if you go along with my profit motive." And them coming on to Gina Rodriguez just struck me as another like kind of deal
2: making without a lot of like actual. Passion or even necessarily attraction behind it. Well, and there's, you know, we see the parents and Dogtooth having pretty standard sex, except for the fact that they are both wearing headphones and listening to cassette decks uh, as as they do it which is Wait is
3: that, is that supposed to be weird? <laughs>
2: um it's I, very mechanical the way they do it it's very
0: ritualistic yeah. the taking off of the clothes the donning of the headsets the setting up of the right. the recorder like mm. all of these things feel very ritualistic. Well, what was
2: striking to me about that scene is that there was kissing you know it wasn't particularly passionate kissing but it was like kissing was a part of the routine you know and kissing is not a part of the other sort of sexual moments in that film. But the kissing almost seems like it's part of the routine, you know, Um, but it does sort of speak to at least awareness that there should be some affection in the mix here, even as they are totally disconnected through their headphones. It's a it's a very interesting interaction. But in the same way that they seem to be going through the motions there. I got the sense with the hot tub scene that this is something they had done before. You know, it was a move they had, they had made before with, with other people. And it's just like, it's a component of their sex life. I don't know if they necessarily identify as swingers or if it's just sort of the con aspect of it that gets that gets them going. But I think we're meant to read some sort of like sexual connection to that overture <laughs> they make, even if the actual execution thereof reads to us as very sort of mechanical again.
0: Well, transactional. transactional. There's a lot yeah. of transactional Better word. approach to sex in both of these movies.
1: But there's some, you know, with the Kajil, you know, there's, you know, love blooms at a certain point. I mean, you do have that, you do have something, some genuine, you know, warmth, and that's kind of where the film builds to. I mean, you know, you mentioned the scene with the masseuse where she's just trying desperately (laughs) like, figure out some way to barter for this, uh, you know, discount, and then finally he's like, you know, I'm not getting nothing out of this, and so I guess I'm going to get a massage. But then, you know, any kind of touch is just so overwhelming to her because it's nothing she's used to. And so that's kind of like the bottom of this arc that the film ends up completing at the very end where she does um, know intimacy and passion that she had no idea about and, uh, and was completely unprepared for in the beginning of the movie.
0: It's really impressive to me how that the whole thing with the masseuse just reads like awkward comedy. It just reads like a silly bit of discomfort humor for the masseuse who has no idea where any of this is coming from or how she's been drawn into it and is faced with this just really weird, awkward customer that she has to try to figure out a way to please even though the customer doesn't want any of what she offers, but then it pays off so thoroughly. You know, we're we're learning really important things about how old Dolio reacts to contact, to physical contact, and the proximity of other human beings. And we're learning a lot of stuff about kind of how she's been raised, and what it did to her, and it all becomes relevant later. And if you contrast that with Dogtooth and, in particular, the siblings' kind of casual yet almost always aggressive physical interactions with each other, like there's a lot of skin shown Mm -hmm. in that movie. There's a lot of uh, just like casually wearing bathing suits. There's a lot of very, very long limbs being draped over each other. But they don't seem to think of their bodies in generally any sort of sexual way, even when they're having sex at times. You get some kind of attempted tenderness between the sisters. Maybe not the licking scene, but like the call me Bruce scene. Mm -hmm. They seem to be touching each other for actual comfort. And they do go to the mother for hugs, but these seem kind of like rare things. They seem... Outside of their own bodies or not aware of their own bodies an awful lot of the time. Well,
2: and I guess this is where we, we have to bring in the, the dog tooth scene where the brother sort of makes his choice between the two sisters, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, sort of gropes them um, and, you know, talk about mechanical, but with definitely an extra dose of, of discomfort because of the incest. Thing, but kind of putting it in the context of familial touch, you know. I, I I'm trying to think if we see the brother touch the sisters, and you know we see the sisters touch. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with an they, example. They wrestle yeah, the, the
3: plane. Yeah, there's,
0: there's a point with the younger sister after the older sister uh, has disappeared. I believe where the two of them are in bed together and they actually
2: that's, kiss. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And,
0: it seems like a, an actual sort of tender moment of contact between them. Yeah,
2: but yeah, that scene where he's feeling them up uh, definitely feels like disconnected from any sort of affection or, or like... Humanity. Yes. It, it, and it's filmed as such. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's it, I, it, That sequence to me is one of the most disturbing things in the film. And to me, it's not even the incest aspect that bothers me. It's that he literally sees no difference between them as sexual partners, apart from what their breasts mm-hmm. feel like and what their asses feel like. He's deliberately blindfolded, so he can't tell which is which. And he doesn't touch any part of them except to manhandle the breasts like he's looking for a, a ripe avocado, <laughs> um, and then to kind of like awkwardly ignore the entire rest of their bodies and reach around them to grope their asses. And it's just such a a shopping for a fresh fruit uh, kind of set of behavior, we know that he's closer to one of them than the other. We know that the two of them relate to him very differently. We know that they have different personalities. And all of that is discarded in favor of which one of them would I rather squeeze the breast and butt of.
1: I think it just kind of emphasizes just the utter detachment that they have from meaning. You know, I mean, it, I mean, it's almost like the vocabulary words. It's like they don't... Things that we associate with sex, with intimacy and love, and none of that registers. I mean, there's something weirdly innocent about all of it too i mean like it, it's like they don't know what they're doing the other their children but at the same time they're adult children and so that manifests itself in ways that are so disturbing because you have you know like play scenes where they're doing things that like a child like they're playing games like a child would but they're You know, they want to run their hands in hot water to see who pulls out first, for example, or or they're being really aggressive with each other as smaller children would be, even though, you know, they're way too old to act like that with each other. So it's an interesting dynamic. It's it's awkward, but it's so much part of the broader scheme of the film to show how. The way they've been raised has just perversely detached them from how they any normal person would develop.
3: I guess uh, what it relates to Kajillionaire is, is that it's never explicit. But we get the sense that old Dolio has been denied any sort of sexual identity, sexual life or you know acknowledgement of herself as a sexual creature through her 26 years.
0: Yeah, I think what connects both of these films, kind of taking all of this a next step outward, kind of away from sex, but still in the same realm, both of these films are very, very interested in the physicality of people who haven't had, quote unquote, normal upbringings, who haven't interacted with society in a way that would teach them physical norms. And old Dolio and the two sisters move in very similar ways, like kind of like floppy limbed and hunched. There's a lot of emphasis on their hair being in disarray in various ways none of them perform femininity as we call it like none of them seem aware of like the male gaze or maybe an old dolio's sense of the female gaze none of them are trying to be attractive to people none of them have any sort of visible sense of self-consciousness about how they act or how they move and one of the things that gets us is in both movies a very awkward and to some degree comic dance sequence that's just you know young women kind of their bodies around in what doesn't really look like what we think of as dancing because it's not rhythmic and it's not meant to attract other people or attract the attention of other people. These are people who they very much both come across – I'm thinking here more of the the elder sister in Dogtooth and Old Dolio, they come across as – thinking of their bodies as kind of meat puppets as opposed to thinking of them as something that they perform in for other people. And the result is just this very alien Like loose limbed body language in both of them, that as soon as you see it, you feel that something's off. You you feel that in some way they're not part of humanity as we know it. You don't know exactly where that disjunct comes in, but just from the way they stand and hold themselves and move or throw themselves around the post office when they're sneaking up (laughs) to uh, what's just going to be walking in the door, you know that these are people coming from an alien environment or alien raising because they move like aliens.
2: Because they didn't do the breast crawl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I, that is, that's interesting. One thing I think we really should touch on, though, in terms of connections, because I think, I think in a way they're, Miranda July and Yorgos Lanthimos is simpatico and that's their approach to comedy. I mean, I think there's a coldness and a different type of absurdity that's happening in, in Dogtooth than Kajillionaire, but they're not that they're not that far apart really at least in the sense that both filmmakers are inclined to set up a, a, a worlds that are completely different from ours with their own set of rules and to just throw the viewers into those places and and then we kind of find our way through and then we find our way through a lot of times through comedy
3: I think that's true I think I think comedy is used to different ends ultimately in these films I, th- I think you know and in, in Dogtooth I think it sort of the colors in the dark areas e- even darker and I think ultimately it's used for largely for relief in the, in, in this one I think all, it builds to a sort of a, a a sweeter sense of comedy by the end of the film
2: but I think they're they're similar in that They are both, for the most part, it's, like, behavior-based comedy, less than sort of dialogue or, or witty repartee. Like, the characters say funny things, but it's more of the way they say them that's funny, you know? Like, there aren't jokes, you know? There's not, like, humorous dialogue, at least, like... Not as written. There are exchanges that become funny because these characters are weird and make conversations weird by extension. But the comedy stems from you know them being extraordinary people in the sense that they act differently than people that any of us probably interact with, you know, day to day. And the humor stems from that sort of disconnect to quote unquote, normal human behavior. And I think a lot of the humor comes from a sort of, it's like a tension release valve. You know, we talked about the tension in Dogtooth and the moments of humor don't necessarily alleviate that tension, but they just give it a little more breathing room, you know? One of my favorite shots in Dogtooth that is also a moment of humor, even though there's really no dialogue or jokes in it, is when uh, the father is uh, has to drive outside to retrieve the plane, you know? And just <laughs> the, the way that that shot is set up up. It's sort of like a foreshortened angle. So you really get the sense of how small of a distance he is driving and how unable the boy is to go beyond a, that certain point. It does create a sort of a sense of comedy, but it is also horrifying in the way that this movie is horrifying throughout because it is showing you this horrifying situation. But it does so in a way that allows you to see a glimmer of humor in it.
3: Yeah, they're both very dry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, they're not telling you when to laugh. It all just sort of comes out of, of watching this stuff play, watching very odd things play out as normal. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's a. you got to run the buckets. Of- <laughs>
3: you got to get back and run the buckets.
0: <laughs> there's a Keith's thread of
1: absurdism thing. to both <laughs> of them. <laughs> For sure. For sure. <laughs> so Kajillionaire is in select theaters now and on VOD. Dogtooth is currently up on the Criterion Channel, Hoopla, Canopy, and Shutter, and can be found on other streaming services and physical media too. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
0: Well, I have recommended this movie on this podcast before. I may have even recommended it twice. I may have talked about it out of the Sundance where I saw it and then
2: saw about it. We're going to have to make a a rule about this, Tasha.
0: (laughs) I'm just, I'm going to keep bringing it up until everybody, everybody in the, no, it's it's just the fall. I'm just going to hit the fall every single week until, um, I don't care. Uh, I'm going to talk about Brigsby bear again because oh. it is such a perfect yeah. fit for this pairing it is yet another movie about a young man raised in isolation with a couple of parents who are conspiring against the outside world to kind of create a strange artificial reality for him to live in and then he has to come to terms with what the outside world actually is and this film gives us what dogtooth doesn't give us you know it gives us the escape it gives us the of having had the raising that he got, how does he go about integrating to the world? What does it look like when he brings his weird vocabulary and his, his misshapen understanding of society and his expectations and his history that literally no one else shares into the world and tries to make it interact with the world that everybody else is experiencing. Mark Hamill plays the father figure character who is raising the the young boy played by uh, SNL's Kyle Mooney. And he's a much warmer figure, I think, than either Richard Jenkins or the father in Dogtooth, just in terms of he seems to have sort of good intentions and sort of warm intentions. But in the exact same way, he's created this strange artificial reality out of a very specific sense of like what it takes to make a good person, what it takes to make a good personality and kind of the upending of his schemes is kind of what we're missing in both of these movies. I think a a certain amount of uh, kind of catharsis and eventually a certain amount of coming to terms with who the parents are, what they did, why they did what they did. Brixby be Bear is kind of the the warm, sentimental, uh, emotional, sweet version of these two movies.
3: So not for Scott.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's quirky, so also not for Scott. It's life-affirming, so definitely not what? for Scott. There's <laughs> very little, it, very little torture. I, very little it.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: well, here's the thing. I had honestly kind of forgotten about the existence of Briggsby Bear, and uh, something brought it back to my attention. Oh, it was uh, actually a piece that I edited on why Saturday Night Live isn't turning out movie stars mm. the way it used to. Just mentioned Briggsby Bear in passing. Uh, And I tweeted about it just kind of in a, hey, I'd forgotten about this movie and I love it. And I got just this huge response from people who had seen it, which the first two times I gushed about this movie and how much uh, I have an affection for it, it wasn't really available widely. You know, you had to basically catch it in an art house theater on its way by. But uh, since then, it's been on various streaming services. It's a lot more accessible than it used to be. If you like to Be Kind Rewind, if you're in the mood for something that hits that exact same spot about community and art and filmmaking and creativity and just like having a support system, if you're feeling down about gestures at everything (laughs) and you want something – Like low key and warm and friendly. Like this is the movie. This is the movie for you right now.
3: I need to see it. I like Kyle Mooney a lot, and I I keep meaning to check that out, but I haven't gotten around to it yet.
0: It's also a very kid-friendly movie, I would think. Really, it's it's Hmm. weird. But it's a like sweet, friendly movie about a, a funny guy in a bear suit. Genevieve, tell me specifically what you love about Brigsby <laughs> Be Bear*, and also what's been good for you in the film
2: world. I mean, lately. it's hard for me to tell you specifically what I what I love about it because, like you, I, I kind of uh, had forgotten it existed until this very moment. Hence my you know exclamatory delight when when you when you brought it brought it up. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I. What I remember most about it is Kyle Mooney, because it's a, I'm, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with, with SNL and, and its current iteration, and I don't have a strong connection to his SNL work. So this is sort of like what I think of Kyle Mooney. You know, in his humor.
3: I think of the one clip from Zoolander Two. I've never seen Zoolander Two, but I've watched the Kyle Mooney's clip from that like about a billion times. And I need uh, when I need cheering <laughs> up. It is, it is an amazing like I don't know ninety seconds of comedy. <laughs>
0: I'm just going to say, I think you've had the ideal experience with Zoolander 2, <laughs> yeah. and you should never go further I with I that I'm going to watch it when this podcast okay, is My over.
2: recommendation <laughs> is Zoolander 2. No, no, it is not. You've got to have a rule about this, Jenny. We? Well, honestly, I haven't watched any movies lately I've really loved, with the exception of one that I don't really think I can recommend, because it has been recommended on this podcast before, and I, and I observe the rules <laughs> that don't exist, but um, uh, I I just, I, I'll just kind of mention that I recently watched Dirty Dancing with some friends uh, and my fiancé who had never seen Dirty Dancing before, despite hearing me and said friends quote Dirty Dancing to each other over the years many, many times. And it was just a real one of those really fun movie-going experiences of showing someone a movie that you love and that it was kind of formative for you and them also liking it. So I don't need to tell you <laughs> to watch Dirty Dancing if you have any inclination to watch it, you probably have. And I think maybe Keith, you recommended it like long, long ago.
3: Dirty Dancing? I think I might have because I, I hadn't seen it in years and it was a, it was a weirder movie than I remember yeah. yeah, it being. <laughs> so it, yeah, it, it's like
2: of... a very weird like view of the 60s through the 80s. Like just it's, it's, very, it's sort yeah. of a period piece. It's, it's interesting. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about Dirty Dancing. I'm here to talk about two non-film things, but that also have a connection, uh, loose connections <laughs> to this pairing. The first is a... uh a mini-series that has an Evan Rachel Wood performance that I like a whole lot and is sort of at the exact opposite end of the spectrum of her character here, and uh, that is Mildred Pierce, the the 2011 Todd Haynes uh, adaptation of the novel that was also a 1945 film starring Joan Crawford, um, which is also very good, but I am recommending the mini-series, which has so much to recommend it, but I'm kind of... Bringing up here in relation to the Evan Rachel Wood character, who um, is daughter to uh, Kate Winslet's titular character, and who uh, Mildred spends pretty much all of the story trying to win over her daughter in in various ways and her uh, very sort of narcissistic uh, hateable daughter played by Evan Rachel Wood kind of uh, confounding her at every turn in that respect. So it's an interesting sort of flip of the uh, parent-child dynamic of Kajillionaire. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's uh, one of my favorite Todd Haynes things. Uh,
1: It's it's, it's truly incredible. Uh, I think one of the high watermarks of hbo's kind of mini series yeah, for sure yeah.
3: i'll second that
2: and then the other thing is uh, very different a tv series a fourth season of a tv series that will i believe have just dropped when you hear this that is season four of netflix's big mouth uh which is an animated comedy Ooh. about sort of uh pubescent <sighs> uh kids kind of figuring out their sexuality and uh, interpersonal dynamics and it is Very frank and not kid-friendly and has a very adult sensibility about sex, but filtered through young kids. Kind of famously, the uh, early teen characters all have hormone monsters, (laughs) like actual manifestations of their hormones that uh, follow them around. It's a really funny show um, if you haven't checked it out. I do recommend Big Mouth, and the fourth season is... Very, very good. Uh, I mean, I think every season has been good, but I just finished watching Screeners of the Fourth, and I'm really excited for it to be out there, so, you know, I can talk about oh. it with people. What's
1: the name of Maya Rudolph's Hormone Monster?
2: Oh, well, the Hormone Monstress, Connie, I believe is her name. Uh, and uh, and Monsters, as as we recorded this, Maya Rudolph just won her first Emmy for voicing Connie the Hormone monstrous. So uh,
1: it's just a complete runaway yeah. performance. She likes a bubble blast. <laughs> a I can't even do that I, I, line did get, justice. Does she, she get to say that? Uh, I I hope on this. On yes, the, we, 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 we do
2: get one bubble bath uh, in in Bowl. season four. So oh, so, good. <laughs> so yes, I'm.
1: It's uncomfortable though. It, it is. I, it, I tried to I tried to it, watch. It almost like died. multiple <laughs> level uncomfortable. Yeah, sentence. like like I tried <laughs> to watch like a binge. I tried to binge it once, and it was just like, oh, this is just. I feel yeah. so bad. <laughs> I've got to stop. Yeah, no. I mean, that's
2: <laughs> that's what made me think of it here, like not just sort of the you know uh, sexuality component, but the discomfort around it. (laughs) Hey there, future slash present Genevieve here just uh, dropping in to say that since we recorded this episode, uh, the premiere of season four of Big Mouth has actually been pushed to later this year. So I'm really sorry that after hearing me talk about it, you can't go watch it right now. But um, I promise you will be able to watch it on a date that I can't yet disclose, but uh, it will be this year. Cool. All right. So yeah, um, my recommendations are... My two very different recommendations are Mildred Pierce, which you can find on various HBO streaming whatnots, and Big Mouth on Netflix. Scott, what about you?
1: I have a much more wholesome animated (laughs) streaming thing I want to recommend, and that is the film Phineas and Ferb, (laughs) the movie Candace Against the Universe, which is up on Disney Plus now. I am a huge fan of Phineas and Ferb. Uh, That was a show that my kids got to grow up on and that I wish i could have grown up on i'm sure hopefully our listeners have seen it certainly and if they have kids my god you really need to see it this it's always been a funny show the simple premise of of these genius brothers who you know create these wild adventures every week or every day during the summer i mean it's the whole thing is they're on summer vacation yeah okay i'm about to sing the theme song but i'm not <laughs> yeah. I can see, I can see. uh yeah follow um, the impulse yeah, so in any case, um, I've still got the theme song <laughs> in my head. So one of the one of the elements of the show is that their older sister, Candace, always wants to bust them, right? She's going to show their mother that these boys have been up to no good, and it's going to be this incredible triumph for her. And, of course, she's it never happens at all. And so that's kind of this formula that the show's played out. In Candace Against the Universe, she gets abducted by aliens and taken to this planet where she is special, where she is like the chosen one type, where she's going to save this planet with whatever essence she has as a person. And it's just this incredible thing for her. And of course, there's a catch. But it's really fun to see her, that character kind of get some more play and then to really see... You know all the things you love about the show, all the you know wordplay and absurdity and hilarious characters and science fiction uh, references and things like that. That's all there, but also it steps up to the challenge of being a movie. Um, there's a lot of musical sequences in the film. There's a lot of interesting kind of metafictional elements this is one of those things where it keeps pulling back until you actually see that the animators themselves kind of hanging around (laughs) looking at their own drawings and stuff i mean it is so clever and wholesome and fun and i feel like it's kind of gone unappreciated because it's just been a staple it's just a thing that just every episode is going to be good and and well thought through and you almost take all of that for granted and i just think like this show's been around for a while. And now they've made this movie, and the movie's a lot of fun. And so I'm going to call it out. And uh, it's on Disney+. Plus. It's Phineas uh, and Ferb, the movie, Candace Against the Universe.
3: Okay, so I had Tasha's back with Kyle Mooney, if not that particular film. I had Genevieve's back with uh, uh, with Wilder Pierce. Scott, <laughs> you're <were> absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, It's a great show. Uh, I'll be, I'll be really fast here because, uh, I think, I think I may be breaking the rules. So this one might have been recommended before, <laughs> but, uh, I got two quick ones here. Basically, my non, my recreational viewing of late has been my wife and I flipping through various stream- streaming services and be like, okay, we can watch that. So. One is the 2017 film Ingrid uh, Goes West, I believe was uh, yeah. so. Yeah, I think – yeah, I like that one. It, quickly, Aubrey Plaza is sort of an um, unstable person who latches on to a, a popular Instagram influencer played by Elizabeth Olsen and moves out to Los Angeles, uh, rents an apartment from O'Shea Jackson Jr., an unusually understanding landlord under <laughs> the circumstances, and kind of just kind of insinuates herself into her life. And I think there's a lot of really easy points to be made about influencer culture social media and all that and it does make those but I think it goes deeper to who these people are what the attraction is and you know I quite like to, I think the end is a little pat but through that it's it's I think it's quite good um, Plaza and Olson and uh, Jackson are, are all, all terrific as, as far as Wyatt Russell mm-hmm. Uh, as Olson's uh, uh, Olson's husband, uh, good stuff. Check it out. Uh, the other one is uh, just we randomly came across uh, a film called "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," a 1986 <laughs> uh, teen comedy uh, starring uh, you know everyone. Specifically, it stars uh, Helen Hunt and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and Jonathan Silverman, and Shannon Doherty, and uh, uh, you know lots of future stars. In it. And it's really not very good at all, but it's also quite enjoyable, and it's it's fun to watch a teen movie that. That does just not, is completely unaware about how all the things it's indulging in are going to be parodied to death for the next thirty years. Like I was, I was, think, I was thinking if, if what Hot American Summer were parodying this, it would look exactly <laughs> like the same. Like the the just sort of the editing techniques, the pop music for the montage sequences. I mean, if you want to just watch a film that is absolutely. Uh, has no ambitions beyond being exactly what it, what it is, which is a, a dopey teen comedy about a dance contest. Uh, please uh, watch short Girls. just want to have
1: fun. Those 80s films are like a, like a bubble bath, aren't they These, like a, <laughs> watching those movies <laughs> just,
2: I mean it would, it would be a nice a nice bubble bath pairing with uh, dirty dancing, I think, which is right right around the same time and same, same general milieu.
3: <laughs> oh well, hold on let's let's back up is that really the message of all the films we talked about this week <laughs> it's not it's not, actually. It's not, <laughs> not. <Wow. laughs>
0: you know it's it's the, the really it's the important message in my favorite movie the fall which I'm, not
1: <laughs> well, about I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there this is it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out october 27th and november 3rd tasha what's coming up next
0: what's coming up next is me correcting you about those dates scott in the past Since we recorded the bulk of this podcast, we've shifted the schedule around just a bit. We have made so many jokes on this podcast about my obsession with Tarsum's movie The Fall that Keith finally suggested we just get it over with and do a bonus episode about The Fall. We wound up pulling in another guest who's also a super fan of this movie, Elliot Kalin, mystery science theater writer, former writer on The Daily Show, and co-host of one of our favorite film podcasts, The Flophouse. We were going to put this out as a bonus episode for our supporters at Patreon, but... But given that we ended up talking for more than an hour about our love of this movie, it just seemed unfair to Elliot, and more importantly, unfair to the fall, to not send this episode out to the widest audience possible. So look for that special one-off episode, born of an in-joke and two fandoms, in this slot next week. And then, coming up on November 3rd and 10th, we'll be looking at two overviews of the state of America, both from the mind of one man, Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. The 2020 movie American Utopia, now streaming on HBO, is Spike Lee's filmed version of Byrne's musical Broadway show, which covers up-to-the-moment topics like police brutality, climate change, immigration, and the upcoming American election. Naturally, when we thought about David Byrne assessing the heart of the nation, we thought back to his 1986 film oddity True Stories, a series of vignettes set to Talking Heads music and Byrne's narration as he visits a Texas town to check in on the American dream. It's two very different looks at America, nearly 35 years apart from the same man, coming up on The Next Picture Show.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Dogtooth, cajillionaire, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at net. We may post your response on Facebook or discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson.
0: I am the film and TV editor at polygon.com. You can occasionally find me writing there. You can find me on Twitter at tasha robinson
3: keith uh i'm a freelance writer i write all over the place you can find me on twitter at k 3000 you can find my writing at places like vulture and the ringer and occasionally rolling stone and uh who am i forgetting uh, most host who i write for mm-hmm. uh mel mel mel's a good one yeah right for mel genevieve how about you
2: i am the deputy tv editor at vulture and you can find me on twitter at genevieve Faske scat
1: okay i'm on twitter at scott underscore tobias and uh i um you can find my work in places like the new york times uh the ringer uh vulture and uh other fine outlets uh the guardian you know stuff like that you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting next picture show.net via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show you can also contribute to our patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash next picture show and if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.